Merry Christmas, everyone. To keep you learning over the holidays, I thought I would put together a collection of our most popular shows. This one is all about complications to keep you sharp if you have a little bit of time off over Christmas. evidence for this but I think my flicking technique will, will <laughs> cause less of a problem because I'm very practiced at it. So what is this new complication? In this paper they describe it as morphia-like lesions. So morphia is uh, localized areas of scleroderma. If you've ever seen scleroderma in a patient it's tightening of skin. Um, I always remember the first patient I ever saw in clinical medicine had scleroderma and it really shocked me because I'd never seen it before then. So it's always stuck in my head. But areas of localized tightening, it's got an immuno immunological basis. So the immune system is causing an inflammatory response that causes this tightening. And uh, Marina has described it in this paper as localized areas of scleroderma, or it looks like that effectively. And what this means to your patient is a dent. They get a dent in their forehead. And it's thankfully rare, but I've seen, certainly seen some cases and um, I have seen them on forums and I've had one patient myself many years ago with the same issue. Okay, so what's actually happening? So the new idea to me, um, it's not actually a new idea, but it's not something I've ever come across before, which is in all of these syringes that we use, they actually use a small amount of silicon oil to lubricate the syringe. So to make it easier to push, there's a, there's a little bit of oil. And the theory would be that if you get the wrong size drop of silicon oil injected into the skin, that you get a local foreign body reaction and you get an indentation as a result. How can practitioners try and help and avoid this problem? So uh, there are many factors that could be contributing to the reactivity of these particles and also the size and distribution of these particles. And um, I think uh, one way to think of it is if you did very little to your syringe, the distribution would be quite narrow, the spectrum of particle size, and most of them would be hopefully too small to cause a problem uh, or too large and therefore basically stay on the wall of the syringe. So um, there, there's something about how we treat the syringe, but also the products that we put into the syringe could affect it. So I found a really interesting letter in the American Academy of Dermatology from Bruno Mikulis Leems. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. And um, what, they, what they did is test how the, the degree of agitation that you used uh, on your syringes. So people who shake and flick their syringes. I'm one of them. I flick my syringe. Um, but also the, the products that are mixed into the actual syringe and how that affected the distribution of these silicon oils. And what they discovered is um, it really interestingly and useful for our sector in particular is that bacteriostatic saline seems to get more of the silicon oil off the wall of the syringe and put it into the solution. It's not a a world apart, but there's a difference there. So there's now that's interesting because most of the drug companies, when they tell you how to mix up your botulinum toxins, they will say use normal saline, not bacteriostatic saline. And it didn't ever seem to me like there'd be a potential downside to that, to actually using what we all do, which is use the less painful version. Mm -hmm. But now there is something to think about. Now, I don't think, you know, I've seen one in 12 years and I've used bacteriostatic saline the whole time. So we're not dealing with a very high risk thing, but it's interesting for those who, who will face this, that they, they can at least, you know, it's, it's information to think mm -hmm. about, about how you make your clinical decisions. Um, I'm not advocating for a big change all of a sudden, but uh, it's useful to know. The other thing they discovered is that um, 
products that dissolve fat, so that's the deoxycholic acid injectables, they, they pull quite a lot of the silicon oil off. So you may have an increased risk of local reactions due to that. Um, and, and as I said, the shaking and agitation is a big factor. That, no matter what your, your solvent, seem to cause more of these silicon oil droplets to be present, as you'd expect. Why do you flick the syringe? So you flick the syringe because if you have a, a tiny bubble uh, inside the syringe and you inject, it acts like a pressure reservoir. So as you're squeezing, you're trying to inject um, your product into the skin, the skin is higher pressure than, than the atmosphere, which is what the pressure is in, in that bubble. So you, instead of injecting, you compress the bubble. Then as you release, you, you squirt your expensive botulinum toxin on the surface okay. of the skin. So you want to get the bubbles out. Um, but you can do that in a, in a range of ways because I, I often, when, you know, when we're training someone on day one of injecting, they flick it like a donkey, you know, <laughs> and when you get good at it, you just skim the edge. It actually works better. So there's some practice to just skim the edge of the syringe and it just causes a little tiny shudder rather than the whole thing shaking around. So I have no evidence for this, but I think my flicking technique will, <laughs> will cause less of a problem because I'm very practiced at it. You over treat them or if you treat them accidentally or you treat them asymmetrically you're going to get a side effect which is extremely noticeable so tell us about the elevators so these are the muscles that lift the mouth almost directly up basically um the zygomatic major for example is sometimes not included on the diagrams but it, it's also an elevator it's just more pulling the corner of the mouth rather than pulling directly upwards the core elevators we need to know are the levator labii equinasi muscle medially then there's the levator labii superioris the levator anguli oris and zygomatic minor and those muscles are all doing very many interesting uh, different expressions. So obviously they're they're involved slightly in smiling. Uh, they're also involved in some looks of disgust, for example. Um, they're definitely involved in the really big expressions if you're smiling a lot. And the, the the time when we treat them is usually with gummy smile. If you're treating either with toxin or with dermal fillers, if you're trying to moderate the degree of movement in that area, it's those muscles that you're trying to dampen or reduce their strength. So are there any side effects we need to worry about with the elevators? So yes, absolutely. If you if you overtreat them or if you treat them accidentally or you treat them asymmetrically, you're going to get a side effect which is extremely noticeable because if if you cause any problem with a patient's smile, it's very very obviously uh, obvious to their friends and family and to them and obviously your smile is a very important thing. So an asymmetrical smile is a fairly devastating side effect um of treating a little bit too much on one side or the other. So Classically, this happens when people inject the orbicularis oculi muscle a little bit too deeply, go all the way through the fat pad and hit the origin of the zygomatic major. So that would be a really awful side effect where you get an asymmetrical smile. Similarly, with gummy, with gummy smile treatments, if you're trying to relax the levator labii nasi muscle, then if you get that asymmetrically, you might get one side that lifts and the other that doesn't. And much more subtly than that is a slightly odd smile. Now, the interesting thing about gummy smile is you can often get a brilliant before and after picture that looks amazing for, you know, for showing clients what's possible, but the patient themselves really doesn't like it. And it's because of the dynamic nature of a smile that if you smile, but you're suppressing the elevator, it can, to their people who know their faces really well, it can just look either insincere or a bit odd. And over the years, you know, talking over 12 years, I've had a handful of patients who haven't liked it because every time they smiled, people know them well, 
say what are you being sarcastic or you're not quite you know because it just doesn't seem like their normal smile so it's worth building into the into the consultation that even if you get a technically brilliant result that it may look it may take some getting used to let me put it that way and in a percentage of patients it may not be worth the benefit that they get and you might want to try a different method for example using dermal filler so that sounds a bit tricky is is there anything that we can do to prevent it it sounds like if we do our best that might still happen the gummy smile yeah, well, that one in particular is tricky because it's more of a familiarity type um, experience. So it's when, and there are many patients who are very happy with the result themselves and they don't care what their friends and family think. And there are others who don't like the, every time they smile, people saying, not getting them. So uh, you need to build it into the consultation. And the other thing is I've over the years reduced my dose right down. So I only use for a first pass on a new patient, maybe one unit each side. Um, whereas some people would use four units. And and that's only because I, I would rather just top them up. Like I said last week, I, I like to take the approach of it being a journey rather than a destination. New patients, I'm more than happy to treat them with a low dose and see them again one more time to get them happy without any downside. Um, and once you know them, you can up the dose. Top of the list has to be most common place to cause an occlusion probably due to the frequency of procedures, which is lip augmentation. So if you're injecting lips, you will probably get an occlusion at some point. They're highly vascular and that doesn't that makes them less safe. Uh, but yeah, you need to be aware of your injections. So superior and inferior labial arteries both run parallel with the lips. Many injection techniques teach you to inject in a way that's parallel with the vermilion border, which means you're constantly putting your needle repeatedly parallel with the artery and the chances of getting at least on one of your injections, a little bit of the needle in that place and then blocking it is much, much higher. What kind of injection techniques? So the classic, you know, vermilion border, uh, filtrum injections, anywhere where you're, where you're running the needle along the, the vermilion border, you're likely to be close to that artery. So it's probably the most common way to augment lips is to inject that way. Um, so one of the, the pros of these, some of the tenting or Russian lip techniques where you're running at 90 degrees, at least you're not parallel with the vessel. And although... Many will say that bruising is much worse. Um, you're less likely to actually fill a blood vessel with dermal filler. So that's the kind of thing you might do to make it a little bit safer. Uh, you might choose a different technique, um, inject smaller amounts at a time. Uh, being aware of your depth is really critical. So uh, I've had one occlusion in 12 years now, so my rates are really good. And that's primarily due to getting the depth correct. So not injecting too deep knowing that the artery tends to run just beneath the, uh, the muscle in most people, unfortunately not in everyone, but you're, you've got that depth to protect you. I know that new injectors, often you can tell their resolution is not that high, so that it looks to the untrained eye that there is similar depth, but someone who's been injecting for five, 10 years will know immediately that's a bit too deep. So we need to be careful of depth in particular when injecting lips. Is there any way that we can get that resolution better so we understand that we're at the wrong depth? Well, you really want to be a super, well, with a good quality product, this is the caveat, because you can't, if you're using a very thick and stodgy product, you can't really be that superficial. You're often hiding relatively poor products underneath the tissue. But if you're using a good quality product, you can be very, very superficial on the lips because a good soft product will blend in really well. So you want to be doing a little depth check just to make sure when you lift that needle up, you should see the skin blanch along the surface. And when you rest that needle back down again with zero force across it, you should be no blanching. If you get blanching at rest when there's no force across it, you're you're in you're above the papillary dermis, means you're squeezing the blood supply out of the dermis. And if you inject there, you'll be able to see the filler. So you need to be a little bit deeper than that, but then not miles deeper than that. So 
elevation of the lip, you should see the shape of the needle quite clearly. Um, if you're lifting the whole lip up, then you're probably a little bit too deep and you're probably a little bit close to the, to the, to the blood vessel. That's a little bit less important when you're angled down and away from the artery. But if you're parallel with the artery, that would be, that would be a very dangerous place to inject. Recently, I've come across three different serious vascular occlusions occurring after chin augmentation. This was an area I was initially trained on years ago and taught it was relatively safe. I've changed my mind on that. I've certainly seen it said in many occasions, if you're in the midline, that you're relatively safe. And although I think that's probably broadly speaking true, I don't think most augmentations are just on the midline. It's very hard to get the aesthetic result without going a little bit on the left, a little bit on the right. And if you're doing a man, you're gonna be off the midline for sure. Um, so that immediately puts you in the territory of the submental artery. And that's what's causing these vascular occlusions I've now come across uh, in different places. Um, and there's a lot of learning there, which, which is worth covering. So which are these vessels that are vulnerable? So there are really only two vessels that you're likely to hit directly in the chin. So you've got the mental artery and the submental artery. Of course, you also have the inferior labial artery, which is very nearby. But with just, just thinking purely about the chin, it really should be one of those two vessels. And particularly for augmentation of the chin, it's more the submental artery. So this artery comes, as it suggests, underneath the mandible. So the submental artery will curve round and then supplies the anterior part of the chin. Uh, but as we'll see, it's a lot more complex than that simple diagram that you see in the textbooks. So what can we do to be safer? So as with all of these cases, whenever you come across a case, you can dissect it in multiple different ways and try and think about how you can reduce the frequency of that happening but also the severity of that happening. So the case I was involved with over the weekend, the practitioner did an amazing job um, and was very aggressive with how they restored the blood flow. So lots of highlays were used. I think we got to 24, 1500 unit vials of highlays that were used over about 24 hours. Um, and this is partly why I think she's got a really good result. There are other cases where you can tell by the case report they've put far less in and actually got necrosis as part of one of the outcomes. So. Um, you've, you've got to look at that in this way. Now, we, don't, we never know for sure because every vascular occlusion is so unique, but I always try and pull out a couple of things that potentially have done differently uh, may have averted the severity or the frequency of that type of injury. So from a frequency point of view, um, each time you inject, you're taking a risk with a vascular occlusion, but um, what can you do each time you inject that decreases that risk? So one of the simple things, which I've always been an advocate of, is aspirating. Now, aspiration is not 100% effective, and sometimes that's used by some practitioners to say there's no point doing it at all. Um, my argument would be even if it only works 25% of the time, you may reduce 25% of the chance of a vascular occlusion. It's actually around about 50% in some of the papers I've seen. I've certainly had many dozens, if not hundreds, of, of positive aspirations back. I suggest you do that before every injection, particularly when you're doing large injections, large volumes. Um, the next one would be thinking about the anatomy. Where is that blood, blood vessel least likely to be? Now, all three of these cases were reported by the clinicians to be at the periosteal level. So these are injections are deep. In theory, the artery is meant to be more superficial. Um, but obviously, you do get little connections and, and sometimes the anatomy is different. And we never know for sure in the, in the case reports exactly where the needle was at the point of injection or whether there was, for example, the towering technique. I, I still see people do that. Um, which is when you start at the periosteum, but you become more superficial to get more projection. So all of these things might affect the risk a little bit. Going back to aspirating for a second, it's really important to know your product. So 
Um, I'm quite aware that not all products will aspirate, and sometimes that's used as a reason to never aspirate. But actually, why not just get to know the individual products that you inject and the combination with the instruments that you use? So if you're using a 27-gauge needle with juvenile voluma, I've tested that. I know that it aspirates, for example. Um, but you might use a 30-gauge needle with juvenile ultra 2, and I know that doesn't aspirate. Now, knowing that changes how I inject on different days. I may, for example, not prime the needle uh, if I'm injecting a big injection uh, onto the periosteum with a product that doesn't aspirate that well, because then I know I get one aspiration which should be sensitive. Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Miranda Pierce. And tonight we are talking tonight. And today we are talking about. Does it matter what time it is? <laughs> Starting with the forehead, there are two arteries there we must be particularly careful of, the supertrochlear and the superorbital arteries, and these basically supply the forehead and they come off from the orbital blood supply. So that's the key thing that makes them particularly dangerous. Now, the good thing about these arteries is you can often feel them. Certainly, you can feel the notch where they emerge from. So supertrochlear supertro notch medially, superorbital foramen laterally, um, you can often feel the, the bony shape and you can also sometimes feel a pulse in nervous patients or someone who's just slim, you can feel the pulse, pulsation. And these are blood vessels that come from the orbital blood supply and supply the forehead, which makes them particularly risky to understand because obviously they are also connected to the same blood supply as the retina. And that's what makes them particularly worth knowing about. Thankfully, we know where exactly where they are. And we know that if you inject deeply in that area, that's what's going to put you at risk. So it's an absolute no to putting a needle into that particular area at that depth. So periosteal injection around the orbital rim would be one of the worst techniques you could possibly employ. And we've got to, if we are going to treat that area, we need to think of a safe way of doing it. Okay, so how how can we be safe? So safety is all around the anatomy. There, are, There's lots of layers of, of technique you can add on to this. Personally, I like to, wherever possible, inject away from the orbit. So you're pointing the needle in the opposite direction. And also depth is really important. Now, I know many injectors will be listening to this and thinking, oh, it's it's not worth the risk. There are lots of, there is an idea out there that it, you can't justify the risk of injecting here because of the potential risk of blindness. Many of us will know that it's the number one area for causing blindness. But the total risk for blindness is still very small. It's still a one in a million event. And the way I've always thought about injecting is we need to understand the anatomy and chip away at the risk and see how low we can get that risk. And there are actually multiple different things you can do to be safer in that area. Um, some of them, I won't give you a complete list for time, but it's you can, for example, always, as I said, point the needle away from the orbit. So that means the filler should be flowing away. Um, you could also compress the blood vessel while you're injecting. There's nothing to stop you putting a finger here, squashing that blood vessel so that the filler can't flow into the orbit. You can use products that you know aspirate. You can aspirate. You can, or most important of all, is to inject superficially. You need to be injecting at a level where you know that you're not on the periosteum, so you're as far away from that artery as you can get. And I do think you should have a good justification for it because no matter what the benefits are, the risks are so big that you probably need more benefit to justify the risk. so, But I would say this is one of those areas that makes a really big difference to someone. If they've got a very deep frown line, people think they're crossed the whole time. It really affects your communication with others. I think there's often a really good reason to take that risk. I've done hundreds of these. I've never had an occlusion. And the chance of blindness with a good technique with a small amount of filler at time is actually really, really, really small. So that's my personal opinion. I know many other injectors. I always say to injectors, you're the one who's in charge of your risk. You know, if you want to... Whatever you feel comfortable with is what you should do. And there's no reason to take anyone else's lead on that. If you feel uncomfortable, don't do it. 
I'm quite clear in the way I understand the anatomy and with my injection technique that I can justify this treatment on a percentage of patients who want it. I hope you enjoyed that. Tune in next week for a show all about injection techniques. We know that's your favorite topic, so enjoy. Enjoy.